everyone. You're listening to The Void Podcast. I'm your host, Amaz Athar, and this is the first episode of The Void. And on this first episode, I focus on the changing field of psychiatry. And personally, I've been interested in psychiatry for a while now. I got my degree in neuroscience at the University of Pittsburgh, and that's when my interest in psychiatry really began. Um, but more recently, I've become more fascinated by how we treat psychiatric disorders. And that fascination really started when I shadowed a psychiatrist um, about a year ago. And before I went to go shadow the psychiatrist, I had an image of what I thought a psychiatrist did. And so whenever I thought about a psychiatrist, I thought of a doctor who would you know, sit down, a notepad in hand, and take notes while they listened to their patient who would talk about their feelings and experiences. So in a lot of ways, whenever I thought about a psychiatrist, I thought about psychotherapy. And I envisioned a psychotherapy session. So in a sense, I thought that psychiatry and psychotherapy were kind of synonymous. But when I went to go shadow this psychiatrist, I didn't see any psychotherapy at all. And instead, the psychiatrist that day was doing consults. And so basically, when a psychiatrist does consults, they go from patient room to patient room, and they talk to each patient about their history of mental illness. And what I noticed was that the psychiatrist asked a lot of the patients about their medications, um, whether it was anti-anxiety medications or antidepressants. Um, He would ask them about their medications. And um, as the day went on and as I saw more and more consults, I began to wonder whether or not psychotherapy was as dominant of a treatment as I thought it was. Near the end of the day, I got the chance to sit down with this psychiatrist and ask him a few questions. And the first question that I did ask him was, is psychotherapy as widely used as I think it is? And he answered the question pretty candidly. And he said, no, Um, psychotherapy isn't as widely used as it used to be. And instead, medication is a more dominant form of treatment in psychiatry. And this fascinated me, and I wanted to better understand, you know, the reasons behind this shift from psychotherapy and towards medication. And I ended up going online, and I found this study on the American Journal of Psychiatry, and the study was published back in 2010. And what they found was that the proportion of patients receiving psychotherapy by itself in outpatient mental health facilities was declining. And at the same time, the proportion of patients receiving medication alone in outpatient facilities was steadily increasing. And so it seemed like the data in this study very much agreed with what the psychiatrist told me when I shattered him. I really wanted to, you know, dig deeper and find out the reasons behind the shift, as well as the consequences of this shift. And to unpack all of this, I contacted Dr. Lauren Sobel. And Dr. Lauren Sobel is a psychiatrist here in Pittsburgh. He completed a psychiatry residency at the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine back in 2014. And he's currently in his third year of his own private practice, where he uses psychodynamic therapy and psychoanalysis. He's also a psychoanalytic candidate at the Pittsburgh Psychoanalytic Center. And the reason why I contacted Dr. Sobel to talk about this is because he himself practices psychotherapy. And in our discussion, which you'll be listening to very shortly, we talk about the reasons behind the shift. Um, Things like economics, things like insurance, things like a change in culture within our healthcare system. Um, And we also talk about the consequences of this shift, whether or not medication alone can be used to reduce the stigma surrounding mental illness, and whether using medication alone kind of ignores the social and cultural aspects of psychiatric disorders. So we talked a lot about these things, and I really want you guys to listen to the discussion rather than listening to me talk for several more minutes. So without further ado, here's my discussion with Dr. Sobel. I want to talk a lot today about that shift in psychiatry from psychotherapy and more towards medication as a dominant form of treatment. Mm -hmm. So I think before we do that, it'd be a good idea to talk a little bit more about um, psychodynamic therapy, which is the psychotherapy that you practice. Um, And from my understanding, psychodynamic therapy really focuses on like the unconscious Mm -hmm. and kind of relating um, 
the person's past to the present and how things in their past affect what they're, what they're dealing with now today. Mm-hmm. Is that kind of like a fair assessment of what it is? Yeah, as a general description, I think that that's about right. The idea that you know we're not aware of everything that's going on inside of us at any given moment. And in fact, if we look at it, uh, it's relatively little what we're aware of consciously compared to you know much bigger C below that. Right. Um, so that's the unconscious. And, and that, yes, our, our past affects our present and our ability to think about the future. So that, you know, our past is very much alive now. Right? It's not over. And um, you sent me this article on The Guardian uh, written by, I think, Oliver Berkman, I think that was his name. Yeah. And it kind of gave a good description, I think, of psychodynamic therapy in, this, in a sense of like how they view mental illness. Uh, he wrote about how, for example, you would view depression as like a stabbing pain. Mm-hmm. So it's like a, an ongoing thing. And as a psychodynamic therapist, you're trying to urge your patient to kind of understand that stabbing pain rather than just trying to get rid of it. Absolutely. Yeah. I, you know, I, um, it's not the only analogy out there, but I think, you know, I like it. It's close enough to the way I would think about it, which is that, right, we're, you know, whether it's depression or anxiety, these are conditions related to the human condition, right? So that, you know, we can't escape from the human condition. How do we cope with it? Right. Um, yeah, so that idea that you know we want to think about you know what what be able to get good at actually describing what it is that they're experiencing, um, without necessarily the plan of um, removing that that they're experiencing, um, and in fact, just when we tend to look at it, so the intensity often tends to decrease. You know, the painfulness, but also our ability to tolerate the painfulness increases. So. But it's the combination of that that ends up being pretty helpful for people. So how exactly do you approach each patient? Like, I know I think like there's a common image when you think of like like a psychotherapy session. You kind of imagine like the patient lying down on the couch mm-hmm. and then you sitting like taking notes even maybe. Mm-hmm. So is that kind of what you do? Do you just kind of sit and listen, or like how does that process go? Yeah. Um, so not everybody uses the couch. Uh, that's a that's kind of a kind of a big topic by itself. You know, the use of the couch or having somebody face to face. The majority of the patients I see are face to face, not the couch. Um, and there are reasons to use one or the other, um, and each individual you know responds differently to that that change in the setup. Um, so you know, what do I do? Yeah, I listen. Um, you know, I would say you could maybe describe it as listening at different registers for what's going on. Um, not with the idea in mind of somehow me catching something or knowing something, but just trying to be open to sort of multiple possibilities. Um, and, you know, uh, again, with the premise being that we're not, we're only aware of a small part of what's going on inside of us, it usually takes a, a, another's mind in order to help us get to different parts. Uh, and that's kind of what I do. I mean, the, you know, I follow feelings probably as a primary you know, thing to be listening for. And I you know, notice when they're absent. I notice when they're present. Uh, I think about the ones I'm seeing and the ones I'm not seeing and wonder, you know, what is it about, you know, the absence of, say, feelings of loss or anger um, that, you know, why is it that a patient isn't experiencing that right now? Is it because it's not there, or is it because there's reasons it's kind of um, shaded over? Um, uh, the idea, 
being that, you know, as time goes on to get into contact with parts of ourselves that for whatever reasons are not, you know, we usually don't feel safe enough to experience at any given time. And it leads, you know, hopefully to vibrancy. That's how it works. And so do you kind of guide the conversation with your patient? Uh, Like, how do you really start the conversation, I guess? Because I, I imagine it takes a long time to kind of build that trust between yourself and the patient, so mm-hmm. how does that process really go? Yeah, you mean from the beginning? Yes. As opposed to just any given session? Yeah. Yeah. Um, for me, everybody does this a little bit differently. For me, I always try to start with what is hurting. You know, that's where we'll focus on initially. But then once I've heard, you know, a bit about that, I, I then end up spending a little bit of time going back into their history so I have a context to hear the present in. Um, and that for me is pretty helpful because even though you know it's impossible for me to know exactly you know the richness of that history over you say a handful of sessions it's at least an anchor point it's a beginning of something and then things can unfold from there so that I can hear about what's going on now with some ideas of what's happened um, and we start to have a back and forth of looking at that um, uh, you know, trust is a huge thing. I mean, trust is, you know, um, kind of building that is critical, and it's very difficult to do this kind of work if, you know, there's not trust there. Uh, but part of the work itself is building trust, you know, it's, uh, they kind of go hand in hand. And um, another thing that I've been interested in with psychodynamic therapy is is it easier to treat certain like psychiatric disorders with psychodynamic therapy versus others? Like I imagine like something like uh, schizophrenia, for example, would be more difficult to treat. I mean, in general, it would be more difficult to treat because it involves like, you know, hallucinations and things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, But does psychodynamic therapy, would it be, is it better suited for certain certain illnesses like depression and anxiety versus something like schizophrenia? Yeah, so um, I think the best way to answer that is to look, you know, to try to look at the studies that have actually looked at it. the effectiveness, right? So the numbers of studies on depression, anxiety, and what we would call sort of character pathology or personality disorders, the, the evidence is pretty robust there. Um, when it comes to psychosis, there's a lot less current evidence. So, um, you know, the helpfulness of a psychodynamic approach in the setting of psychosis, I think, you know, that is not known yet. Um, that being said, you know, uh, psychodynamic therapy itself has changed over time. So some of the stuff that exists from, say, 50, 60 years ago, where uh, within schizophrenia, some of the earliest medication trials were being done, uh, some of the, the uh, one of the arms there were, was psychotherapy. And at that time, psychotherapy really meant psychoanalysis, kind of proper. And it's pretty clear that the old way of doing psychoanalysis in this with a patient who has schizophrenia is probably not helpful, you know, likely harmful. But you know, whether the more modern ways of working um, <clears throat> are helpful or harmful, I think it's not clear right now. And you've mentioned a little bit about like the old way of psychoanalysis. So how does it? How has psychoanalysis changed over time? Because I know, like back then, like Freud, for example, he's kind of like the father in a way of, of psychoanalysis. Mm-hmm. And obviously the way he treated patients was very influenced by the time he was living in. Correct. Um, so how do you think it's, it's changed over time? 
<clears throat> I mean, it's as much as culture has changed since you know, 1890, um, you could imagine how much it's changed. You know, where it's very different time culturally right now than it was then. So in every way, um, you know, there's um, been some really significant changes. Um, you know, back with Freud, the idea was being able to kind of put the mind on par with the rest of biology and, you know, think that we, it's just a matter of developing a microscope um, to look. Right. Um, these days we know that that's the kind of an impossibility and, you know, our capacity to look is influenced by our own, the therapist's subjectivity. Right. So um, that's a radical shift from where things were. There, you know, back then it was thought that you could really... Um, concretely see something. Now we know that you know it, what we see depends on the, the seer, you know who's looking. Um, so I, that would be probably I would say one of the biggest. Um, in addition to then, that idea has fostered. Well, then it you know what treatment looks like really depends not just on the patient but on the therapist too and who they are, and their history and how these things kind of how the patient's history and. The therapist's history weave together in similar ways and dissimilar ways and how you work with that and that where where things started uh, within psychoanalysis just really wasn't on uh, people's radar so much a few in select individuals but you know, Freud really not so much and you mentioned how you know the psychotherapist their history can can have an impact mm -hmm. on how they treat their patient mm -hmm. do you think that like what are the advantages and disadvantages of that? Because I think in some ways people might argue that um, the therapist might present some, some kind of bias when they treat their patient. Mm -hmm. um, in other ways, I guess it'd be you can create more of like a personal environment where it could be easier or better to reach your patient when you do um, include kind of your history into it. Um, so what are your thoughts on that? Do you, do you see that there could be some kind of bias or is, it, is that kind of helpful actually? Um, I guess it depends on what you mean by bias and also when you say, you know, insert your personal history into it, whether or not the personal history ever comes out in discussion, that's a different kind of topic. Right. Uh, but we have, you know, we can't escape our own personal histories no matter what anyways, yeah. no matter what kind of modality of whether it's therapy or how we're intervening with patients or whether, you know, I'm a psychiatrist or an endocrinologist, right? You know, we're driven to do things, you know, that we find meaningful and there are reasons that those particular things feel meaningful to us. Um, and that always influences our interactions with other people, whether it's patients or friends or family. So, yeah, I'm on the side of not running from that or definitely not seeing that as a um, problematic bias. It is a bias, but I don't see it as problematic. Okay. Yeah. And um, so why did you, why do you practice psychodynamic therapy? What, what drew you towards that? Yeah. Um, I was thinking about that because uh, you kind of gave me a heads up on that question. So I was thinking, I definitely, you know, I, I, I you know, my undergrad and graduate school was nutritional science. You know, I, I, th I think I took Psych 101 and that was about it. So I came into medicine, you know, really not thinking about this stuff at all. Um, I got into psychiatry from a neuroscience side I did I spent a year at Columbia in the middle of medical school doing uh, um, fMRI studies and mostly adolescents 
with ADHD um, and, and looking at structural changes uh, over time by the effects of medication. Um, so that's kind of, you know, I, I found that to be fascinating. Um, but really it was there, uh, it was at Columbia that it was an interesting place. I had heard, started hearing some of the like grumbling of um, uh, this, you know, whether you know, this, this idea of a schism within psychiatry of, you know, sort of neuroscience or neuroanatomy on one side and the psychology or the mind on the other. And, you know, there's a whole lot of history there that, you know, was well before my time. Um, but at Columbia, they seemed to, it seemed to be kind of an open place where you know, everybody existed. Um, so that was the first place that I met analysts, that uh, the PI that I was working with um, himself, you know, obviously very uh, engaged um, on the neuroscience side. Um, and at the same time, he was doing analytic training. So the idea that both of these areas could be held simultaneously seemed like you know that's when, when I got introduced to it that was it it's only later that I realized that there really is something to the history of the schism and that it, it does exist um, but as as time went on I think it for me is just hard to tune out the history of the person and increasingly it seemed like um, there is a way of practicing in which that history does not create that much effect in on this as for a psychiatrist and that much effect as to what to do um and that that just didn't resonate for me so um you know i'm i'm in a place now where i have a lot of resonance to what i do because i you know it's all about the context of an individual's life um it's not only about uh, their symptomatology and so do you also prescribe medications too, in mm -hmm. addition to providing that therapy? So I think, as you said, so with, with like psychodynamic therapy, you get the chance to explore the patient's history and how that affects, affects what they're going through now. Mm -hmm. um, do you think providing medication kind of supplements that in a way? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I think for sure there's a role for medication. Um, and it's critical. It can be critical, depending on what's going on. It can be critical, um, but it's obviously not a cure-all, because if it was, then you know, that would be the only thing that we were doing these days, and it's not. Um, and also when you look at the effectiveness of medications themselves, that they are effective, but they have their own issues in terms of effectiveness. They're, um, you know, patients stop taking them. Um, they have limitations, you know, some big studies even out of Pittsburgh, like the STAR-D, that, that ultimately, you know, uh, response rates are not, over time, great. Uh, so the part of the question is, well, what else do you do? Um, often medication by itself is not sufficient. Sometimes people get additional medication because the first one isn't enough, and it's not uncommon that people end up with, on multiple medications because that's really kind of all, the only alternative is just to keep adding. Um, but for me, my, in terms of my perspective on medication, is that I think it can be extremely helpful for engaging in the kind of work that I do therapeutically. So it, help, it can help facilitate a process. And that for some people down the road, depending on how the therapy process has gone, um, there'd be maybe less need for medication ultimately. And it's not uncommon that I have patients that I either have come to me on medication or that I've started myself down the road come off 
and do they come off just because the therapy is working better? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah, better. I don't know better. You know, I don't maybe compare it in that way. I, I, I see it as that the medication helped facilitate a process. Right. Once that process gets going and um, growth happens, then there's less need for the original facilitating agent. Yeah. yeah. And kind of shifting gears a little bit towards um, that shift towards medication as a dominant form of treatment. Um, and I was actually, I read a study in the American Journal of Psychiatry from 2010 that showed that uh, the number of patients receiving, or the proportion of patients receiving psychotherapy alone in outpatient mental health facilities fell from 15.9% to 10.5%, mm-hmm. while the proportion of patients receiving medication alone jumped from 44 to 57%. Is that something that you've seen personally as a psychiatrist? Um, so, you know, I'm... This is going into my seventh year uh, since I started residency, going into my third year since I graduated. So it's my view is really just a seven-year view. Um, so that study is 2010. Right. Uh, so we're in it. I, I mean, I've been in it you know, since that data existed. So um, it does not actually feel to me like it's continuing necessarily in that direction. Um, but it's clear that... that that exists. Uh, the overwhelming majority of people who are getting treatment for uh, mental health are on medication. That is their form of treatment. Much fewer individuals are receiving therapy. And um, those getting a combination are probably in the smallest category. Yeah, yeah actually in that study it said that um the proportion of patients receiving both psychotherapy medication fell from 40% to 32%. Yeah. So that's also falling a little bit according to that data. Yeah. Why do you think that shift is actually happening? Is there like some kind of change in the mindset of psychiatrists that's causing it? or Why is it happening? I, that's, so yeah, we can, we can try to circle around that very complicated question because I think there's a lot of reasons. Yeah. Um, one is that, you know, we, right, sort of historically, before we could look at brains you know, a hundred years ago in this kind of a way, there, there had to have been, and this is, I think, why Freud was as successful as he was, a way of trying to conceptualize mental health. Um, and you could do that by looking at culture, family, environment, and think about it in those kinds of a way. As science itself has, has evolved, um, you know, the um, inherent what predictability, I guess, of biology can't be denied anymore, right? And um, so that that shift kind of just follows along with, you know, understanding that there there is a biological mechanism at play. Um, but I think that these things could be seen more as a uh, continuum or a, a dialectic because, of course, it's not, it's never going to be one or the other. Um, you know, we all have our biology, but we're intimately affected by our environment. Uh, so I think we just, what we see in these kinds of trends is a reflection of where science has gone. The, um, as neuroscience has taken over, um, the narrative there has turned more towards the biology, um, which is important for it to have done that. Uh, and there's been a lot of neuroscientific advances for the better of, of patients. Um, so it's, it's critical uh, 
but we you know should be careful to not throw the baby out with the bathwater um, because no matter how well we know the neuroscience um, their environment always is going to play a role uh, and to the extent that that's true there will be no pill that will take away environment um, and therapy is well situated to be able to help with that side of it yeah because I think uh I mean, you talked a lot about that, about uh, how I think today in psychiatry or in like in healthcare in general, there's that shift towards like a more of a biological model of disease. Mm-hmm. So in terms of psychiatric disorders, I think we view them more as like brain disorders, yes, um, like abnormalities in our brain chemistry. And you know, medication they, it affects that very directly. And mm-hmm. I mean, with all like the biomedical research, um, I think there is that shift towards you know, medication can affect the brain in, in a biological sense. Um, and I think in a way we're kind of equating mental illness to physical illness in that sense too. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, treating, you know, depression with medication just as how you would treat like a stomach problem with medication, that kind of thing. Right. Um, but I think with mental illness, it's it's interesting because there are these social and cultural components to it that I think are really strong. So, for example, like something like childhood trauma is a very strong social component to mental illness. Yes. And then things like with uh, with culture too, like you have. Um, for example, like the Muslim population, like Islamophobia is a huge thing nowadays, yeah. and I think that very like culturally unique stigma has an effect on mental health. Absolutely. So I think medication kind of doesn't necessarily address that, and I guess therapy does because you can talk through it. Correct. So do you think that you know therapy does address those cultural and social things better than medication? Uh, better than medication because pills could never talk about cultural bias, bullies. Um, disappointments I and mean, a pill can't talk back um, so it not just better it's it, the pills can't address it um, they can help a patient tolerate what's happened um, and and maybe their sensitivities to what's happened have been affected by their own biology right so that would be maybe predisposition um, but uh, there's always I think going to be a place for talking about it um, and increasingly, there are studies that are, you know, look at the neuroanatomical changes that develop in response to talking. Uh, so in the same way that a pill can affect biology, it turns out that so does culture and interaction and words. So, um, you know, we're, it's not that we're not actually affecting biology by talking. We are. Um, and more and more sort of studies, you know, whether they're neuroanatomical or fMRI studies, show that. So do you think with, you know, this, uh, this rise in using medication, do you think in a lot of ways we're kind of ignoring that social and cultural component to mental illness? Like, do you think that, because mm-hmm. I feel like nowadays people just want that, that quick fix, that yeah. medication, because it, it works, I mean, it doesn't necessarily work, work fast, but it's something that you just take and yeah. you get better that way. Yeah. I just feel like... Uh, in a way, I mean, with medication, you're kind of ignoring those those factors that are so important to mental health. Well, we're not addressing them for sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, we're not addressing them, and for some people, you know, things are so overwhelming that at least they have a medication. Um, and often, for a lot of people, they don't have a space to be able to consider those other factors and the way they've been affected, and continue to be affected by those other factors. So at least a medication can exist that can help. Um, but if we're talking about ideal, the ideal scenario is to be able to 
talk about these things. Um, yeah, and therapy is really, you know, not the only setting, but quite a unique one to do it in. Right. I remember I, uh, I shadowed a psychiatrist a while ago, and um, so I was expecting to kind of like shadow his psychotherapy sessions with patients, mm -hmm. but that's not really what happened at all. Instead, he was doing consults that day, so he would go from like patient room to patient room and mm -hmm. like, talk to them about their history of mental illness and like what they're going through right now. And a lot of those patients were going through some kind of like physical illness. They weren't necessarily there because of their mental health. Um, and so I talked to him about that and I asked him about, you know, whether or not psychotherapy was kind of like on the decline in terms of like how it's used. And he said that like in a hospital setting, um, as a psychiatrist, you know, you're expected to see so many patients each day. Mm -hmm. So you don't necessarily have that time to do, you know, practice psychotherapy. Do you think that that's kind of like a valid way of thinking about it? Do you think that in, in that hospital setting, it's just more practical to prescribe medication rather than spending you know, a long time talking to the patient? Um, so I think you know, there are real limitations um, around providing therapy, time being one of them. Uh, but that, you know, the, the reasons that time has been cut, the, the, that, there's cultural reasons for that and obviously financial reasons for that, right? So, and the time being cut is happening everywhere, you know, when uh, PCPs have, what, three minutes with patients these days, that wasn't always the case, yeah. right? So, um, you know, when you have the economics of medicine driving clinical intervention, then unfortunately that's not always in the patient's best interest. Um, so that's a part of it. I think the other part is that, you know, what, what's happening these days is there's less and less psychiatrists capable of providing therapy uh, because, um, because, again, all of these cultural factors that are affecting the training of psychiatrists are playing out. So now, you, you know, um, it's, not as em it's not emphasized as much as it used to be. And, um, and so, but psychiatrists are physicians and they've gone to medical school, you know, the majority of them have gone into the helping profession because that's what they want to do. Yeah. Um, you know, they, and so they come out of uh, a training, uh, a psychiatry residency training, still wanting to be helpful. Uh, so to the extent that you've provided a skill set for an individual to be helpful, they're going to use it. If that skill set is predominantly the ability to diagnose and prescribe medications, then that's what psychiatrists are going to do. So what is that change in culture and training that you mentioned? Um, well, well, depending on how far back we go there, you know, a lot, a lot of psychiatrists became psychoanalysts. Yeah. Okay. So part of the residency training itself included a huge part of therapy exposure, their own, with patients, theories about it. Um, but as there's, you know, there's been sort of a building knowledge of neuroscience, then things have to get cut. Mm -hmm. um, and so you don't have that kind of focus these days sort of built into a training program. Those that are interested, you know, have to figure out ways of supplementing it. And um, so, but that has an effect on, on what a you know, practitioner can do when they graduate. And I was reading on uh, Pitt's website, their um, psychiatry res residency website, and they mentioned that they still train their uh, residents in psychotherapy to mm -hmm. a certain extent, mm -hmm. but they also mentioned that 
psychotherapy isn't really covered by insurers as much anymore. Mm-hmm. That's like a reason why they don't cover, or that's a reason why they don't teach psychi- psychotherapy as much mm-hmm. because it isn't covered as much. Um, is the reason why it's not covered just because it is expensive because it takes time to, to practice it? Is that why? You know, I think that, that that comment on there is a little bit dated, actually, because I think there used to be more issues around payment uh, by insurances than there are now. I think that comment was there probably before even the parity law was passed okay. nationally. So, but, you know, th- th- it still points to something, um, which is that, yeah, it, there is more capital, you know, sort of, we could say, invested into therapy than there is on the medication side. Fortunately, you know, some studies now are just starting to look at the economics of this and saying, well, wait a second, you know, if medications over time, um, you know, what, what are their effects and, you know, what do they prevent from happening? And actually, is it cost effective or as cost effective as we thought it was? And more and more, whether that's um, medication or some of the more brief psychotherapeutic interventions, doesn't look like there's a huge cost savings there uh, so yeah but I mean I think that what you found on, on that website is a perfect example of how the economics can contribute to the culture and I think um, I mean there's definitely disadvantages to just providing medication I mean, we talked a lot about that uh, but I think at the same time there's kind of some like pros to it as well Mm -hmm. so I think um, there is a lot of stigma surrounding mental illness Mm -hmm. as it is Um, a lot of it I think a lot of that stigma has to do with like how legitimate mental illness actually is because you can't like physically see it in most cases and I think in a lot of ways by kind of relating mental illness to physical illness you kind of legitimize it in some sense and I think in that way that kind of reduces that stigma Uh, what are your thoughts on that? I I think that that's the hope and I think there's some accuracy to that. Obviously not entirely, right? You know, it doesn't take it away completely. Um, uh, for sure it doesn't take it away completely, but I think it's an understandable kind of desire as, as you know, if we equate it to physical illness, then, you know, everybody, everybody gets physically ill. So, you know, it's not, you know, why do we have to kind of continue to silo this and look at it problematically? Um, so that's the hope. Um, I think we could do a better job in general of still holding that attitude but not looking at treatment purely as a biological treatment in the form of a pill yeah and that's the thing I mean I think we could consider psychotherapy a biological treatment in the same way we know that the effects in the brain although they're different happen Um, so there is it is a biological treatment it's just a different form um, but I agree that you know it, it is a good way to try to decrease stigma by showing that you know mind body are kind of the same thing um, but obviously you know stigma is still a huge issue and so that that argument I don't think is sufficient although I think it's it's, it's I'm glad that it's there another big thing I think is um, with medication I think the argument there is that it's like evidence-based treatment mm-hmm. and obviously there's a huge you know push of resources into like biomedical research to prove you know the safety and the, the efficacy of these medications yeah um, and I think there's this misconception that 
psychotherapy isn't as evidence-based or standardized as yeah. medication. Um, again, that's a, that, I think that's a misconception. I think a lot of studies have shown that psychotherapy can actually be more effective than medications. Mm-hmm. Um, so what are your thoughts on, on that? Yeah, I mean, I think this is just sort of another example of how um, economics in a capitalist society kind of you know, drives culture. So there's a lot of money to be made uh, with the development of particular pills. Um, you know, the providing psychotherapy, nobody's going to walk away from that, a millionaire or a billionaire. Um, it's just never going to happen. So um, there's all sorts of ways in which the money can influence direction, and so that's a big one. Um, Right, so that you have you have a pharmaceutical industry that sets up you know effectiveness trials, um, and ha- there's a process through that. I mean, in that way, it's the same as you know medications say to treat hypertension. I mean, obviously they have to demonstrate an effect, and they do. They have an effect, um, but uh, it, so does therapy. Uh, and, you know, I think the argument was totally a sound one probably 20 years ago uh, when it comes to, you know, that there's no evidence for psychoanalytic treatments. There wasn't really much, and there were reasons for that, and I think, I think it was unfortunate that it took some, some of the people in the field so long to come around to getting on board with at least looking at outcomes. But people have done that now, um, and that stuff exists now. You know, there is... Um, you know, more and more, I think, quite robust evidence to, to show that psychodynamic treatments are, are extremely effective. Um, and surprisingly, even when you look at it uh, there, that actually when treatment ends, there is a continued building effect. And medication and briefer forms of therapy just do not demonstrate that. Right. Yeah, um, even with like CBT, for example, we'll talk about CBT a little bit later on, yeah. but... I mean, like CBT and uh, medication, they can have like a more of like a short-term effect on the health, and they do work. But then in terms of like long-term, like the studies have shown that psychodynamic therapy has a better long-term effect on the patient. Yeah. Why do you think that is? Um, I would say that we're working on helping somebody build a capacity to cope with the human condition. Mm-hmm. Right? So to the extent that you've done a good job there with that goal in mind, that... Um, they can continue to work on that themselves after the treatment ends, and that continues to grow. Medications don't help with that. Um, you know, medications are effective, but once you stop taking them, their effects fade. Yeah. Um, any treatment with the goals in mind of taking away symptoms is purely the end goal. Um, you, there are lots of treatments that can take symptoms away, uh, but once those treatments stop, they tend to come back. Um, but because the goal is not really symptom reduction purely uh, when it comes to psychodynamic or psychoanalytic treatments, to, in my mind, it makes a lot of sense why you would see that kind of building effect over time, even when treatment has been terminated. It's not that it builds over time because they've continued to be in treatment that whole time. It's literally actually after it ends, it continues to build. Um, and I think, yeah, th- that's how I would explain those, that kind of a finding. Yeah, because I think with, um, with like medication or like cognitive behavioral therapy, they view psychiatric disorders, I feel like they view them more in terms of like a cluster of symptoms. 
versus like psychodynamic therapy, they kind of go to like a root cause of the of the illness in, in a sense. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think about that? Do you think that with psychodynamic therapy, you're kind of addressing that root cause while with like medications, you're kind of just, you know, just addressing the symptoms, like the the effects of that cause. Yeah, I I would agree with that entirely you know what we could get into well what is the root cause um and we could kind of get in the weeds there but uh uh right that symptoms are happening for a reason it would be uh somebody who's doing psychodynamic psychotherapy would be a premise in their mind there are reasons for this some of that might be biological biologically determined um, but most likely it's at least some combination of what was biologically determined mixed with environment and history and could we look at that um, and try to understand why those symptoms are there Um, and just that pursuit has a treatment effect Um, both on the symptoms themselves but in in a much broader way too Uh, trying to remove a symptom as quickly as possible there are times where that needs to happen for sure, you know, the patient otherwise is not safe, you know, or at risk of losing their life, um, at risk of really losing a lot of their functionality if we don't have ways of removing symptoms quickly. We need that. Um, but that's not the final step, in my mind, by any means, because if we stop there, the odds of that coming back is very high. And that's what we see. We see kind of recidivism. And, huge you know um relapse rates are high uh and i think this is all related to that you know too much focus on symptom reduction as an end goal another big thing with with uh with the push towards medication and i think we kind of touched on this a little bit earlier i think like pharmaceutical companies they have a lot of money Mm -hmm. um, and they get a lot of funding so obviously that funding is used towards you know those biomedical studies to mm-hmm. test the effectiveness of medications. But a lot of money goes into like advertising medications too. Yeah. And I think when like patients see those advertisements of these medications that seem to be working, they're more drawn towards, you know, getting medication versus going to see therapy. Yeah. Do you see that in like in your patients or do you see that in the general patient population? Do you see like a in the patient's mind like a general shift towards wanting medication instead of Oh, I mean, for sure, I would say that I see that everywhere because it's part of our culture these days. I think, you know, probably 50 years ago, again, I can only speak from what I've read or movies, you know, from that time because I wasn't around then. But I think even then, therapy in certain regions of the country was much more sort of culturally normative like it was people were doing it, had a sense of what it was. You know, if you even said psychoanalysis, it was, you know, to, to anybody, they would could kind of draw you a stereotypical picture of what that is. These days, they're still, if they know at all, are probably still drawing that stereotypical picture, you know, and certainly don't have an understanding of what's changed since then. That being said, because so few people have been in therapy themselves, and probably few people know other people that are in therapy, People just see stuff that they see on TV or, you know, have family members themselves that have gone to their primary care doc and were started on a medication. And this is if you want treatment, treatment is medication. You don't even know that ther- what therapy is. Yeah. 
let alone to have a nuanced discussion around, well, what are the differences, you know, what are the potential benefits of therapy versus medication, or what about in combination? That's culturally that's not where we're at. Yeah. Where we're where where we're at is, you know, if you're not feeling well, there's usually something to take to help you feel better, hopefully. Yeah, and I think with um with psychotherapy, again like with like misconceptions, I think with even in the media there's or people watch, you know, they watch TV, they, they look at, what, I mean, watch movies. I think there's, like, a misconception of psychotherapy as being kind of, like, an out-of-date, kind of, like, wacky form of treatment. Because mm-hmm. I think a lot of people think about, even at school, when you learn about psychotherapy, you learn about Freud automatically. That's the yeah. first person that, that, you, that you really learn about. And again, with Freud, like, a lot of his methods were very much related to the culture of his time. Yeah. And so, you know, some of his ideas were kind of sexist according to today's standards or racist Um, so do you think that's kind of like a driving force as to why people don't seek therapy because they view it as kind of outdated and they have these ideas of you know these sexist or racist ideas that you know Freud had when he was doing psychotherapy back in the day yeah so you know I think um, you know Freud and his ideas specifically has a you know polarizing effect and um, you know, as people, you know, maybe you know, under, in an undergraduate course in psychology, or even for that matter, a psychiatry resident within a, a residency program that tends to lean more on the side of neuroscience, you know, there's usually always this moment where you know, here is what therapy is, and they'll say something about Freud, and present some of these more um, sort of provocative ideas as a way of dismissing the whole enterprise. Um, and look, in my mind, nothing's perfect. There's a lot of problematic thoughts then, but you know, <laughs> um, uh, you know, like every other big idea, um, there's fallout along the way as people are honing that. Right? You don't know what the effects are going to be necessarily. Sometimes it's way too broad of a sweep than it should have been um, but things change and uh, I think it's unfortunate when people throw the whole enterprise out because of some polarizing ideas that even actually when you look at it were not that polarizing for the time which is what you're saying right? That, that it's not that radical although even then some of his ideas were pretty radical um, so uh, but the ones that were not that you know, sort of considered radical. Some of them that were considered radical then have really just become a part of our culture now. Um, the ideas, you know, the the ideas that you know we're not always aware of what's going on inside our mind at any given time is, I think, fairly accepted these days. Just generally speaking, um, things like you know, slip of the tongue is still very much like common language. Um, that you know, we understand that um, early traumatic experiences probably have a lasting effect on us and how we relate to people moving forward. We, these ideas have lasted um, because they're good ones, and they, you know, it's because they resonate with our own personal experiences too. We we can see that we can see these things ourselves. So uh, they're not going to go anywhere, and and for that reason, I don't. I don't think therapy itself is in danger by any means. I don't, I don't think it's going to go away. 
I think there's going to be times in which it's more accepted and certainly paid for by insurance companies, say. But even at times where insurance companies might be balking at paying, there's going to be individuals that are willing to pay for treatment because it resonates with them. I, I hope that insurances continue to pay because there's a whole group of individuals that would not otherwise be able to get therapy if their insurance doesn't pay for it. So you mentioned the idea of like insurance uh, being able to cover therapy. And I think um, like cognitive behavioral therapy um, is more likely to be covered by insurance companies because it is a more goal-oriented um, type of psychotherapy. Yeah. Fewer sessions, shorter sessions than psychodynamic therapy sessions. Mm -hmm. So in a way, I guess it would be kind of cheaper to cover CBT versus mm -hmm. psychodynamic therapy. Um, but even though it's, you know, possibly cheaper to cover, um, you know, studies have shown that it may not necessarily be as effective as psychodynamic therapy mm -hmm. um, in the long term. Right. So even in Britain, there was like a study that showed, or in, in, in England, there was a study that showed that, you know, after shifting towards CBT, um, like that wasn't like an effective thing to do to shift towards CBT because in the long term, their patients, you know, might have still had that mental, mental illness. So what are your thoughts on CBT in terms of why we use it? Like, do you think that it is just because, you know, there are shorter sessions? Because in a way, it is kind of similar to medication, too. Um, so what are your thoughts on, on CBT? Yeah, so I, I think, you know, there's there's powerfulness within CBT, too. Yeah. Um, and uh, I think those therapists that end up gravitating towards actually becoming CBT therapists, you know, there are reasons inside of themselves that that's where they've gravitated towards. And um, so I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't knock, knock it um, in, in any kind of a way. Uh, you know, I think it's, it, it's a meaningful form of treatment. Um, but I also think that it sort of, as it developed and the energy around it, you know, people th in the same ways that, you know, um, medication was going to be a cure-all, that somehow CBT was going to be revolutionary. And that's just not how it's panned out. It, it has not been revolutionary. You know, there's uh, for basically the same diagnostic categories that CBT has been shown to be effective in. Now, you know, 20, 30 years later, it's the same groups of diagnoses that psychodynamic treatments are effective in. So, um, these things are on par, at least when it comes to, you know, what types of patients you can be doing this with. And like you said, so that study um, uh, that I think was looking at the NA NHS. Right. Um, right. That, it, I mean, this it kind of makes sense. You know, pe people have been affected by their lives. This stuff doesn't just go away in three months. Yeah. It doesn't. You know, we we want to be maybe hopeful that it can, and some parts of it can feel better in three months' time. But the idea that somehow that's going to disentangle all sorts of history and way of relating to people just doesn't prove to be the case when you do studies long enough to look at follow-up. Yeah. Uh, and then you'd have to wonder about cost savings then. So, of course, three months of a treatment is cheaper than say, 24 months of a treatment for the first 24 months. But then the question is, what about for the next four or five years? 
And when that kind of a study comes out, what, what they start saying is that, well, you know, people have relapse in the groups that had brief interventions. And the ones that we paid for more upfront do better once the treatment ends. Um, so I hope that there's more and more sort of cost effectiveness studies, you know, really direct comparative cost effectiveness studies, because that, that's really like the last piece yeah. uh, that needs to, you know, needs to build in the evidence. Um, and, and if it continues to show that, that actually, if you look at it, cost savings is better if you provide a longer form of treatment. And I think, you know, that's going to change culturally what we come to expect. It's going to change the economics, you know, insurers would be willing, I think, much more willing to pay for something if they know that down the road, actually, in terms of their own bottom line, it makes sense to do it. Mm. Um, so things are moving in that direction, uh, but I don't think we're there yet to sort of be too um, declarative about all of that. Yeah. I think with CBT, I, mean, I think the reason why it's so similar to medication is because it is a quicker fix. And I think culturally, um, as, a, as a society, we want that quick fix. Mm -hmm. We just want that feeling to be gone. And that's understandable because, yeah. you know, when you are dealing with something like anxiety or depression or any kind of mental illness, you just want it to be gone. Yeah. Um, but as you're saying, like, in the long term, you know, something like psychodynamic therapy can, can be better because its effects are more long term and you're really dealing with that unconscious part. Um, kind of like that root cause of the problem. Well, let me just add, you know, yeah. say one more thing about this sure. is that I, I think I think CBT is quite effective up front. Yeah. And for people that are otherwise, you know, totally overwhelmed with yeah. what they're experiencing, I think a trial of CBT would make perfect sense um, uh, to help ease some of that initially. But then I would like to see a lot more than what I see now is a transition. You know, once things are a bit Le uh, less overwhelming than transition somebody to a longer term treatment um, and, and then maybe just one other piece there is that you know although um, all of the a lot of the um, evidence-based studies for CBT came out of brief interventions right we're talking 12 to 16 sessions in real life right not in an actual study in real life people are in treatment with CBT providers much longer than 12 or 16 sessions, right. much longer. Um, and really, that manual was not designed, if you actually look at the manual, for those that long of a treatment. It was designed for 12 or 16. Uh, but I think, I think people have known, even though it's maybe not so openly discussed, that really people need more than that. So... Like, where do you see the future of, like, psychiatric treatment going? Do you think that there will be this continued shift towards medication as a dominant form of treatment? And do you think that, in a way, because, I mean, as we talked a lot about, um, like, psychodynamic therapy can be effective in the long term. Do you think that there needs to be a push towards those studies that measure that cost-effectiveness in the long term? And um, I guess the third thing is, in order to, like, legitimize psychodynamic therapy, Kind of viewing it and, and how it affects us biologically too. Mm -hmm. So, do you think that, like, where do you see the shift going, and or how do you think psychiatrists or the healthcare community can make psychodynamic therapy a more like dominant therapy? Um, so, this is my optimistic side. Uh, so, my optimistic side would say that I think I I would hope that we've hit the end of the pendulum swing. Yeah. 
um, towards a purely biological kind of approach to things, and that it's already started to swing back. That would be my hope. Um, and I think, you know, in terms of the groups, sort of national groups that I'm involved in, and the numbers, you know, in terms of memberships, you know, maybe not necessarily locally here in Pittsburgh, but nationally, I, I think that's probably the case because these groups are growing, they're not shrinking. Um, you know, the attendance rates are up, not down. So I, I, that's my hopefulness side is that, you know, actually we're moving back already um, in a direction that would be more supportive of dynamic treatments. I think part of the reason we're moving back is that we've, we're realizing more and more the limitations of purely biological, and if we're talking about medication, right, the, the limitations of, of medications. And that, you know, there's a lot of energy and excitement that came out around these. They are quite effective and helpful, but they have limits. Um, and as time goes on, those limits have been become more clear, um, which understandably would then shift the focus again. Well, then what? Um, if that's the limit, we've reached the limit, what else can we do? And, that, and invariably, that's going to bring it back to therapy. Um, so I, I hope that like that um, AJP article from 2010, that you know, if they do it again in 2020, that the rates haven't continued. But I don't know, you know, um, if it will or won't. Uh, what does it need? You know, what what else do we need uh, to help it move back? I think yes, uh, you know, more effectiveness studies more cost-effectiveness studies, um, more direct comparative studies. Absolutely, I think it would be wonderful, you know, if, if some money could be put towards, um, say, brain imaging uh, in the setting of analytic treatments so that we can start to show the powerful biological effects. I mean, that some of that's already happened, but more needs to be done so that we can kind of get stop arguing about does it cause an effect you know that I, and just kind of move past that and get on to well it clearly does what is it what is the effect and how do we understand that and you know can we start to wonder are there particular patients that would benefit from particular types of dynamic treatments and interventions and um instead of sort of being caught at a very early step that those of us who do this, you know, don't need, you know, necessarily any more evidence that already exists uh, to convince us that obviously it's effective. Right? You just, that data comes from our work with our patients, but not only because there are evidence studies too, right? Um, so yeah, I think it would be great if we had you know, if there was much more funding around looking at the uh, mechanisms of action, sort of the neuroanatomical mechanisms of action, of therapy, of talking. Um, so, hopefully there will be. Well, that's all the time we have for okay. today. Thank you for speaking with me. I really appreciate it. Yeah. yeah definitely right. feel like I'll learn more about this shift. And I think a lot of it has to do with just our culture and how we view not only like psychiatric disorders, but also like the treatment. So, right. yeah, thanks. Yeah, this was great. Yeah, thank you. All right, so that concludes the first episode of The Void Podcast. I hope you guys enjoyed listening to that. I definitely had a lot of fun recording the podcast with Dr. Sobel. Um, he's very insightful, has a lot to say on the topic, and it was a joy to talk to him about it. 
Um, and it was very educational for me, and I hope you guys learned a little something from it as well. Um, there will be podcasts in the future. I hope to do one on harm reduction and drug addiction sometime soon, so keep your eyes peeled for that. That will be posted on my website, um, thevoidblog.com, so please check that out. They'll also be on my SoundCloud page. Just go on soundcloud.com slash thevoidpodcast. But I definitely recommend checking out my website, thevoidblog.com. I have some writing on there right now. I have a Q&A with Dr. Farah Abbasi about cultural psychiatry and how to provide culturally competent psychiatric care to Muslim patients. So please check that out on my website. But otherwise, um, that concludes this first episode. Again, I hope you guys enjoyed it, and thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.